The Retirement and IRA show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier and Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. This is the Retirement and IRA Show coming to you from beautiful northern Colorado. Join us as certified financial planner Jim Solnier, as well as Colorado State University finance instructor and certified financial planner Chris Stein, teach you about IRAs, 401ks, annuities, social security, pension plans, and estate planning in a fun and enjoyable show. Whether you are listening live in Colorado or streaming from their website or iTunes podcast, Jim and Chris want you to know that they're available to help you plan for your retirement. Just visit their website at jimhelps.com. That's Jim, H-E-L-P-S dot com. And click the Meet the Team button on the homepage. Now here's Jim and Chris with today's show. Hello and welcome to the Retirement and IRA Show Q&A edition for this week. I've got a fairly tight uh, time frame today because I know Jim's got to go off into another meeting in a little while. So we'll, uh, we'll truncate some of the normal banter at the front end here. Um, I'll invite him on as soon as he's ready to talk. But uh, pleasant day in Colorado for those of you who care about about the weather. But uh, I know we've got a a typical slew of questions. We've still got a couple lingering, you know, uh, annuity questions left over from Annuity Awareness Month, which was June. Uh, Always have Social Security questions. So I'm sure we'll start off with that. And uh, Jim will surprise us with the rest. So you're ready to to launch off. Did you say pleasant day? It's going to be 97. It's pleasant right now. That's I mean, it's right pleasant now. day yes, right, right now, now at 11 in the morning, beautiful. although it's, it, uh, when I checked an hour and a half ago, it was already 80, so I'm sure it's pretty toasty out there right now. It's 85 now, 85, allegedly. Yeah. It just so, feels a hell of a lot hotter than that. Yeah, so yeah, it's going to hit like 97 today. It's, yeah. it's, that is not pleasant. I'm sorry. I know you love hot, dry. I don't like it that bake, hot. Baking. I'd prefer. Oh, okay. No, I like it in the 80s. I like it 80s, dry, clear. Yeah. Is that too much well, to ask? <laughs> <laughs> so it's going to be a hot day here, but it is summer. So I'm certainly not yeah. complaining. That's what summer is supposed to be. If this was December, I would be complaining. But uh, I can handle it in the summer. My uh, swamp cooler is, is going and keeping everything uh, nice and moist in the house. So I do like that. And as Chris said, we do have a short, uh, not necessarily short, we can record for an hour, but Chris is not going to be able to go on and on and on like he usually does on some of these questions. So I will try hard, folks, to keep him on track. It can sometimes be hard. His brain thinks that way and he goes down those rabbit holes. And if you're a longtime listener, you know what I mean. I can be very punctual and, and, and pithy and Chris just kind of rambles on and on. So keep it. Simple, stupid. How's Will that do. today? Will do. Perfect. Let's, Perfect. You know, we played a game a while back that we tried to answer all questions in 10 words or less. 10 we words could, or less. Yeah, we could yeah. do another one of those shows. 
you did you did much better than me. <laughs> Anybody knows it's I who goes on and on and on, not Chris. You actually could answer a few in 10 words. Or, me? No, it, it takes me 10 words just to say good morning. Uh, but you, you, you definitely uh, got a few answered in 10 words or less. I'll give you credit on that. All righty, we're going to start with Social Security questions like we always do. We actually have three Social Security questions today, Chris. Before you go, oh, wow. Uh, one is kind of a Social Security question. The other two are Social Security questions, but I think they're more planning related. So that's why I'm including them. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have a, an annuity question as well. Mm-hmm. We're going to go from Social Security to an annuity as what we're trying to do is clear up all the annuity questions that came in in June and some older ones that I hadn't had a chance to get to. Uh, in, in light of National Annuity Awareness Month, and because Social Security and traditional income annuities are kissing cousins in how they operate, um, I just thought it would be good to kind of clear up some of those annuity questions. And then we have regular questions. Okay. Okay. All righty. First question. Hint, 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 hint. He doesn't give a state hint. He gives a state. Oh, I can easily do this. I'll give you a hint. It is one of the states I drive through in order to get to Ohio from Colorado. And I take I-70. I can't get any easier than that. You've got about half a dozen states to choose from. Kansas? Oh, yes, that was easy. I thought you would think about it a little bit more. Well, that's the first state you hit on I-70 as you leave Colorado. So I was going to start there and head east. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. You could have kept just guessing states and, and eventually got it right. But yes, he is from the fine state of Kansas. Okay, he begins. Hello, Jim and Chris. I have been listening. And, and before I get into this, folks, these Social Security questions, again, are going to be kind of unique. They have to do more with planning than Social Security. Kind of a unique approach I took today. Okay, thank you for your podcast. I have been listening for about a year and a half now and greatly appreciate the knowledge you both pass on. My wife and I both work for the same company and both have the same options for our medical insurance. So either one of us can cover ourselves or both of us with no medical premium or coverage difference. I just turned 50. My wife is 48. I earn about 20000 more than my wife, but we both make less than the maximum Social Security earnings limit. Our current plan is for her to stop working somewhere in her mid-50s. So I would say probably over the next seven to nine years, Chris, somewhere around there. I will continue to work until I'm 67 to cover medical insurance until we both qualify for Medicare. My question concerns Social Security claiming and HSA contributions. Now, I'll pause there, Chris. You might want to write some of this down. Okay. What he's com- what he's proposed. It's I had to read this a few times, folks. I kind of get what he's thinking, and it was intriguing. My initial take, though, Chris, was God, you're really going to have to count the numbers, and I don't know if it's going to be that meaningful of a difference. But hmm. I think what he's proposing would work. So, anyways, that's it's it's a unique email we got. I kind of liked it. Okay. If I understand things correctly, if my wife were to start her Social Security at age 62 and I wait to 70, if I die first, she would be able to receive the higher Social Security amount. 
which would be the amount I would have been getting. Oh, that makes sense. He makes more than his wife. He paid more in. His is the bigger benefit. Yeah, let me add one thing before you go on just to um, so people know. She would get what he was receiving as a survivor benefit, but only if she moved to that survivor benefit after she had reached her full retirement age or older. So if he were to pass away young, I don't know the relative age difference, or I wasn't paying enough attention if you read him off, but um, he's talking about her claiming at 62. If he was two years, 70... Two, two, two and, years, Chris. Okay, if they're that close, then if, if he waited to 70 and, and had claimed, clearly she's over her full retirement age, so she would, in fact, move into his shoes and effectively receive his benefit uh, instead of hers, if he were to pa- uh, pass away first, uh, you know. Also, he would retain his if she were to pass away first. But be aware that if you move to a survivor benefit because your spouse passes away, you'll only get the maximum amount. You'll only get the amount that they were collecting if you yourself have reached your own full retirement age. Uh, so, just a heads up for people you know that might find themselves in that situation. Okay. Perfect. So, but, but where did I leave off now that you took over? I Okay. If this were true, what you just described, and it's true, if this were true, would it be more beneficial for her to cover, and this is where it gets unique. He's trying to plan here, Chris. He's strategizing. Would it be more beneficial for her to cover both of our medical insurance under her and therefore max out her health savings account? This would lower her Social Security taxes she pays in. What he means there, folks, and I'm not trying to rob your thunder, Chris, but what he is meaning there, if she funds, obviously the employer is going to offer her the ability to fund her HSA through her payroll. If that's the case, she gets the trifecta of taxes on HSAs, tax deductible going in, tax-free coming out, and exempt from payroll taxes if it's funded through an employer contribution. Properly, through the employer contribution. It has to be set up properly at the employer. Yeah. If if you fund an HSA yourself, like I do on mine, when I had one, I have a I don't have a qualifying eight, uh, high deductible policy now. I'm probably going to go back to it too, folks. Now that I don't think I'm going to need any more hot surgery, and I'm hoping not for my AFib. But when I funded my HSA in the past, I didn't do it through payroll. I did it myself, and I had to pay Social Security taxes on those dollars. But if she does it, she doesn't have to pay Social Security taxes. Mm-hmm. So here's his thoughts, Chris. Yeah, just just one extra thing. Not only does she not pay taxes on it, it reduces the entry into her earnings record at Social Security. That's why she's not paying taxes on it is because it's not being counted as earnings for Social Security purposes. So that will reduce her benefit effectively by having lower earnings entries in her earnings record. But that was their strategy because he's going to be able to increase his. So let me continue reading. This is what they're thinking. I don't know if it's going to work, but I like his train of thought. So he said, if this were true, then would it be more beneficial for her to cover both of us under her medical insurance and max out her HSA? 
One thing I want to say is, yes, you can match out her HSA, but because it's a family plan, they'll be able to put the family maximum in. This would lower her Social Security taxes paid in, as Chris just said, and Social Security monthly payments while increasing mine to my highest possible amount. Now, I'm not quite sure how he gets that. He doesn't give us the exact dollar amounts these two are earning. But he's claiming she'll pay less into Social Security. I'm thinking, Chris, because he's no longer covering his medical, all those dollars will now be subject to Social Security taxation, Mm -hmm. increasing his, which is the higher benefit anyways. Mm -hmm. Okay. I am playing the odds here that I would pass away first and she will receive my now even higher Social Security amount. Am I overthinking this? Or is one way more advantageous over the other? Thank you. Gives his real name, but we'll call him George from Kansas. I kind of like his train of thought, but I think if you crunch the numbers if there's any way to even do it i don't know if the bang is going to be worth the buck but what do you think yeah i think you'd have to run the numbers that they've got uh themselves and you're gonna have to factor in you know the the true impact of him recognizing higher earnings for social security purposes over the coming years if those are going to make a substantial difference in his own benefit And when he says he's playing the odds, actually, he's not so much playing the odds as he's taking another technique like we suggest, uh, the higher benefit recipient to consider delaying to 70 to create the largest survivor benefit for either spouse, whoever lives longest. So it doesn't matter who dies first, the survivor gets his benefit. And this is taking it another step forward beyond just delaying. He's actually trying to manipulate through these choices his own earnings record to make it a bit bigger. Um, I think there's a lot of moving parts here, and it would all depend upon the um, relative numbers between her and him and his her benefit versus his and what, his earn, what her earnings are now. And there might be some side effect uh, issues uh, as well. Um, that, that you'd want to make sure to look at it. Take a spreadsheet, right? I'm sure somebody's out there do it. This is this is a this is an analysis that I would say I have not done. I I suspect uh, it would not result in a blanket recommendation that this is the way for everyone to try to do things. I think it's going to be a case by case specific situation uh, where it's going to take your specific numbers to determine if this makes uh, really any difference uh, for you. And it, you know, it, it, it would be an interesting exercise to do uh, from a spreadsheet standpoint to really look at, you know, not doing it this way versus doing it this way and see what the delta, see what the change is between the two. But it's an interesting, it's an interesting idea. I, I don't know that I've heard this, approach um you know we've already we've talked about funding an hsa through payroll deductions and that trifecta that you mentioned where you also get the you know the benefit of avoiding the payroll taxes on those dollars but um doing it intentionally to to, with the target goal of trying to boost up the higher benefit social security benefit recipients benefit while sacrificing a little bit of the lower um that's an interesting take on it. 
I do kind of like it, but I think the dollar amounts, relatively speaking, is so minimal. I I think it will mm-hmm. make his Social Security larger, but is it going to be meaningful? I don't know. Yeah, and as long as there's not a downside to doing it, if you think about it, I, you know, yeah. it, it, if there's not a downside, because what he's just to kind of simplify it for people who are having trouble following along, what he's trying to do is sacrifice some of his wife's Social Security benefit potential and shift it over to his with the recognition that hers is going to go away when the first of them dies. So they're trying to bias towards or pre- you know, have preference for his benefit, getting it as large as possible through this decision for her to shift the medical expenses as much over to her payroll deductions away from his. Um, if it's not going to really harm it, you know, the, the question is, is it going to make a, a big difference? Might not, but if it isn't going to hurt anything, probably worth, might be worth trying. Yeah, I don't see how it's going to hurt. And and to mm-hmm. me, it doesn't matter who dies first. Right. It still works. Yep. At the death, if they don't do this, she's still going to have the smaller Social Security. Mm-hmm. But her smaller Social Security will be bigger than if they were to do this strategy. Mm-hmm. But at the death of the first spouse, he keeps he said originally, I'm going to play the odds. It doesn't matter. You right. don't have to play the odds. The survivor is going to benefit. So I can't see the downside. It's just taking some of her Social Security and kind of putting it in his, which is the one that's going to be remaining at the death of the first spouse. If they don't do that, irrespective of who dies first, her benefit goes away. Right. Where there could be a little bit of harm and where this might, where the spreadsheet would reveal this is that if the shifting of benefit over to his from hers, if it costs a dollar fifty of hers benefit to add a dollar to his, then okay, yep, while they're yep. both alive, they have sacrificed a little bit in order to increase the survivor benefit. If it's a dollar for dollar shift, you know, giving up a dollar of hers to gain a dollar over on his, I don't see a downside because there's no harm while they're while they're together, while they're both alive, and there's more left. It just shifts the proportions of the spousal benefits between the two of them more to his, which helps the survivor. And as long if it doesn't hurt the, the couple, then there's no downside. But I suspect that might not be a dollar for dollar shift there. And that's where the spreadsheet would come in. I have heard and I think and this is the way my memory works. We got a question similar to this a long time ago with self-employed couple. And true, mm-hmm. we did. Mm-hmm. And there's there was more opportunity for them to play around yeah. and maximize one benefit over the other with the acknowledgement that let's get this larger benefit as big as possible. Right. Because if we don't and it's spread out equally between us, we're going to lose 50 percent at the death of the first one who dies. Mm-hmm. Let's just overweight one. Yep. And we're going to have a much better benefit. That was a very intriguing case. And they had a much greater opportunity to do it on how they paid each other. Right. I remember that email. Yeah. And obviously you do now as well. Yeah. And it was the same same concept where you're trying to change the proportions of the total benefit for the couple. The proportions between the two spouses. So they weren't, in their case, as equal. They were trying to weight it heavy on one side for this very reason that there was really little or no sacrifice for the couple because they didn't care how it was split when the, the both checks were coming into the household. 
but then at the death of the first one, having it off balance so that it left more for the survivor was a distinct benefit. And that's what they were trying to do through payroll manipulation might be the wrong word, but deciding to pay one of them a lot more than the other one. Absolutely, because they were about earning the same amount, (laughs) folks. And they'd have equal social security. They'd sit and say, well, wait a minute, Jesus, Mm -hmm. when one of us die... We're going to have a massive cut. Let's just overweight. We're going to get the same amount of money while we're living, but the survivor gets yeah. a much better benefit. Yeah. That's kind of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Anyways, that just kind Similar. of popped yeah. into my head. Interesting right. one, yeah. Uh, yeah, so now we're going to get into the social security question. Not social security question. The annuity question. These are leftover annuity questions. Uh, this gentleman gave us a hint. I like this hint. I never knew this. It said, I live in the state... Where the largest silver nugget in the world. Now, again, we don't vet this, but he's claiming there's no silver nugget ever bigger than this. The largest silver nugget in the world was found. It weighed 2,045 pounds. Wow. No, this is not. He says, no, this is not a typo. One over one ton of silver in one nugget. I don't think I'd call that a nugget. That's a rock. That's yeah. that's a chunk of silver. Hmm. So he lives in the state where the largest silver nugget was found. I don't really know why, but my brain immediately went to Nevada for some reason. Is that possible? Nevada, well, maybe because of the gambling? I don't know. But the answer is... Eh. Okay. Colorado. Oh, that was my second guess, but (laughs) I didn't know that. And I've lived in this state for 24 years. I've never heard that. He he doesn't say where in Colorado or when. Now I'm going to have to Google it. But wow, 2,045 pounds. That's a big ass silver nugget. Now I wish that was a gold nugget. Oh, my Lord. Okay. I have been following your podcast for years and found it to be very helpful. Thanks. I have been investing in MIGAS, and I'll stop there, folks, because he's just using the acronym, Multi-Year Guaranteed Annuity. Essentially, the annuity companies or insurance companies version of a uh, timed deposit like a CD. You give the insurance. It's not a CD. It has no FDIC insurance. Don't think that, but it operates in the same way. You give the insurance company a stated dollar amount. They guarantee you to pay you a stated amount of interest every year compounding. I I would imagine there could be one MIGA out there that's simple interest, but I've never seen it. They generally compound stated amount for a stated number of years. Then it matures and you're given a limited amount of time to make up your mind to do something with it, close it, move it, renew it, whatever, and move on. So you can buy a two-year, three-year, four-year, five-year, six-year, multi-year guaranteed annuity. Work very, very similar to a CD. uh, And they've grown in popularity ever since interest rates started coming up uh, over the past 12 or so months. Okay. I have been investing in MIGAS for several years and always try to buy A-rated companies. Of course, lower-rated companies pay higher interest rates. Mm -hmm. Let's pause there for a second, folks, and explain why. If you could buy, let's just say a a MIGA paying 5%, just making this up. 
If you could get Amiga paying 5% from an A-plus rated company and Amiga paying 5% from a B-plus rated company, which one would you choose, Chris? Well, of course, the A-plus rated company. There'd be no reason to step down, if you will, or expose yourself to the greater risk perceived by uh, engaging with a B-plus rated company. Right, because keep in mind, folks, there's no FDIC insurance with multi-year guaranteed annuities. Even though when you open a MIGA, you're going to get account statements. You don't get them quarterly. You don't get them monthly. You get one a year on the anniversary, pretty much showing you, here's the money you put in. Here's the interest we guaranteed. That's the first statement. The second statement, here's the money you put in. Here's the interest you earn. Here's the compounding on that interest for the second year. And it just kind of shows that. So you get just one statement. However, your money is not squirreled away at the insurance company, a little account with your name on it. Your money becomes part of the insurance company's quote unquote general account. In other words, it's an asset of the insurance company. It's not yours. And if that insurance company goes bust, your money is lost. So the states, not the federal government, the states will back for their residents some of the money at risk at an insurance company. And that's called the State Guarantee Fund. It's Orwellian because they tell you it's not guaranteed. I have no idea why they call it the State Guarantee Fund. It sounds really impressive but theoretically they tell you there might not be enough money mm-hmm. and the way they do it folks is very similar to the way fdic does it there's really no money in the guarantee fund it's just that if an insurance company goes bankrupt that's <clears throat> excuse me that state will assess all the other insurance companies in that state who sell that line of insurance. So if you only sell property and casualty and a life insurance company goes under, you as a property casualty insurer don't have to make whole a life insurance uh, company. But they will assess based on the percent of premiums written in that state to each insurance company who writes the same line of insurance, in this case, fixed annuities, And those companies have to throw all the money into the pool up to the limits of all the policyholders. Now, there's a lot that will happen beforehand, before it even gets to that. Even if an insurance company goes under, they will have some assets. So they have to figure out first how much assets do they have uh, there. Then they have to assess the limits because it's not an unlimited amount of coverage. You can get somewhere between two hundred and fifty and three hundred and fifty thousand of coverage, depending on the state you live in. So then the state has to figure out what each policyholder is entitled to. Then they have to figure out what all that combined is. Then they have to figure out what each insurance company has to pay in based on the percentages of the premiums they wrote. You can see, Chris, this doesn't happen uh, in a day. It takes a while to figure this all out. But that's how the state guarantee fund works. And it's designed to make people feel a little more comfortable putting their money into insurance policies. The federal government does not do this because the federal government does not regulate insurance companies. 
state governments regulate insurance companies. Okay, so he continues. Since all of my investments are under the $250,000 insurance limit, and as long as he keeps using different companies, folks, and keeps his holdings under 250000 at those companies, he's okay. You can't open five MIGAs at the same company for 250. You only get one set of coverage. So he's using multiple insurance companies and keeping under 250. So he continues. In light of that, why am I only buying A-rated companies? Shouldn't I look at B-rated companies because of the higher interest rate they pay? And he's noticing something that happens in the industry. If a lower-rated company meaning a company that stands a greater chance of going insolvent, if they are paying the exact same amount of an A-plus rated company, one of the stronger companies, no one's going to do business with them. They have to pay more. Sometimes they'll pay 10% more, sometimes 20% more. They have to pay more in interest to entice people to do business with them because they are a weaker company. And he's just saying, hey, and he gives an example. The B-rated companies are paying, excuse me, the the A-rated companies are paying approximately 5% versus B-rated companies paying 5.45% for a five-year MIGA. Can you help me here with my logic? Your logic makes perfect sense. The decision on whether or not you should do it, though, is yours. I did speak in the past that if you are buying a lifetime stream of income, I wouldn't touch anything below an A-plus rated company. I just wouldn't. I don't know if a company is going to be around in 15, 20, 25, 30 years. Many, if not all, but I'd say many of these B-rated companies are private equity owned, Bermuda or Cayman Island based, hokey financial statement insurance companies. They just are. Not saying they're going to go under. There's just a lot of hokey stuff going on with private equity. Private equity loves annuities because they're sticky. They can get your money and they put these long penalty phases on. Now, again, you can get a two or a three-year MIGA. That's not too bad. But they also sell a ton of fixed indexed annuities with 7, 10, 12, 15-year penalty periods. Very sticky money. They are based overseas. They use GAAP accounting instead of SAP accounting, which they have to use in the United States. It allows them to play with their books. I told you about this TSR ratio that a a forensic accountant started. He's trying to get the word out on these companies. He's trying to give you some way to evaluate the risk with them. I've also shared with you, I like some of what they're doing, but I also don't like some where they push annuity products and offer them for companies that they think are highly rated in their TSR ratio. 
but I have learned a tremendous amount from them on the games that these private equity insurance companies are doing. That said, if you're only buying a two, three, four, five-year MIGA and it's fully within your state limits and you're willing to wait the length of time it's going to take to get your money, that's key. It's not going to be as fast as FDIC insurance at all. And it's important to you in the example you gave to get about 10% more interest. If that risk that the Hokie insurance company might go under is worth 10% more interest earnings and you are willing to wait to get through the entire um, illiquidity or, or bankruptcy, not illiquidity, but bankruptcy proceeding, who am I to say not to do it? Mm-hmm. But I know, for instance, in my practice, folks, we are, or I am, and Greg is, and Andrew is, licensed uh, insurance agents at our firm. We do offer commission insurance products. Most of the MIGAs that we use for our clients are commission-free and with higher-rated companies, but that's irrespective of the situation. We still have insurance licenses, We, however, will never sell anything below A minus because number one, I just don't want to. And number two, my errors and emissions insurance won't cover it. They wanted me to pay significantly more in errors and emissions insurance to cover the sale of B rated companies. And because I don't believe in using B rated companies, I didn't pay for the extra coverage. Why pay for something you're not going to use? So it's just just because I don't feel comfortable doing it doesn't mean you can't feel comfortable doing it. And if you feel comfortable doing it and the extra 10% in interest is important to you, and it would be, it's beneficial. And I concede, these, just because you're private equity owned, based in Bermuda or the Cayman Islands and using hokey accounting, doesn't mean you're going to go under. Private equity doesn't exist to lose money. They exist to make money. But they don't exist to, in my opinion, be nice to sharehold, excuse me, be nice to the policyholders of insurance companies. They're just looking at the insurance company as a way of getting access to some cheap money that they can turn around and make a boatload of money off of for their shareholders, the private equity shareholders. So I just kind of look at them with a jaundiced eye. Anything you want to add? I don't want to beat this horse to death. I mean, I. I, I think if the guy is comfortable with it, do it. Go for it. I have no problem with it. It's just I personally, as a firm, we have chosen not to do it. <clears throat> and if he was asking about lifetime income, no, I'd be much more uh, adamant in my suggestion that he don't use a B-rated company for lifetime income. Yeah, right? and I, I think that's good to recognize that there's a big difference between relying on a promise of a company that they're going to give you your money back plus interest in the next two or three years versus payments over 20, 30 plus years uh, that you're going to be relying upon. Those are two very different levels of reliance, <laughs> I guess. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think there's a difference there. And I would be, you know, I'm not real excited about below A- minus generally uh, as well, because uh, a lot of times I, th- I think that the, the difference in what you're going to get is not that great when you l- really look at it. But... Um, 
if it was for a short period of time and I was staying within, you know, I felt comfortable and I could uh, absorb the illiquidity issue if I did have to rely upon the so-called, you know, state guarantee fund to make me whole, um, then uh, I think it'd be at least worth considering, especially if he's, you know, personally comfortable with that, that extra risk that he's taking on. Yeah, absolutely. So don't don't let our biases sway you, and uh, you do what is best for you. But his logic, I can't argue. He's mm-hmm. saying, hey, I, I'm comfortable with all this. So again, he makes the decision, not us. Okay, this next question I like because, well, first of all, this is the new question of the week. We're getting back into that. And it's an IRA-related question, so that's good. But their hint kind of ties in to our last hint. He says, or she, is it he or she? A she. Georgette says, I am from the state whose official motto, I didn't even know states had official mottos. I am from the state whose official motto is Eureka. That kind of ties into a 2,080 pound Mm -hmm. silver nugget. I'd I'd shout Eureka if I found a 2,080 pound silver nugget. Is that one California? California. Did you know that? Did you just guess out of thin air? No, I think it's related to the... The gold rush. The 49er gold uh, rush, yeah. yeah. I didn't know states had official models. Interesting. Okay, I'm 66 years old. My husband is 67. I opened a Roth over 10 years ago in the form of a deferred income annuity. This is not an annuity-related question, folks. It's just that she opened well over 10 years ago a Roth IRA mm-hmm. at a deferred annuity company. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, where the heck is that? I just I printed this out. Now I'm looking down here. In a Roth IRA, which will not be fully liquid to me until 2024. Wow. Talk about a long penalty period. Mm-hmm. She opened it over 10 years ago, folks, and she still has to wait another year. Yeah, We're talking like maybe a 12 a years, 12, yeah. 15 year penalty period. That's what I mean right there long penalty period for her to get at her money. So it's been sitting in this deferred annuity. And I want to add, it's not a deferred income annuity you have, listener, or that means it's been annuitized and there's no account balance anymore. You're saying in another year, you're going to have access to your money. You have a deferred annuity. You will have the ability, based on what you wrote in 2024, to access those dollars and and take it out of the annuity if you want. It can still stay in its Roth wrapper. But again, we tried to explain this during the annuity show. Don't confuse a deferred annuity with a deferred income annuity. A deferred income annuity has been annuitized. There's no longer an account balance. I'm under the impression she has an account balance the way she worded that. Okay, just wanted to uh, say that. She says, when it matures, I don't plan to annuitize it. So right there, it's not a deferred income annuity. It's a deferred annuity. Okay. In 2021, I opened another Roth IRA, but this one was for investments. Okay, so far so good, Mm -hmm. right? Okay. My husband opened his first Roth IRA also in 2021. So she has a Roth IRA, folks, well over 10 years. Mm -hmm. He just started one in 2021. So he has one that's two years old. Okay. 
We are considering using some of our investment Roth funds. Now, why they would open an investment Roth in 2021 and now want to start taking some of those dollars out is beyond me. I don't know how they opened it, but if they did it with contributions, they can't have too much money in. But nonetheless, they're considering accessing some of the money inside their Roths, folks. So you can see where her questions are going. She's trying to figure out the five-year rules. Mm-hmm. Here are my questions. Since I am over 59 and a half, and I have owned a Roth for well more than five years, which she has, folks. She opened her first well over 10 years, she said. Can I take some of the money out of my investment-only Roth tax and penalty-free? Yes. Mm-hmm. That's a simple the one. Money, yeah. The money you put into a Roth IRA, your contributions can come out anytime, any reason, no taxes, no penalties. I can't stress that enough. Earnings can come out 100% tax-free if the Roth is over five years old, or at least you have been involved in the Roth program for at least five years. The Roth you have does not have to be. Hers is it. She wants to take it out of her investment Roth. She only opened that in 2021. That Roth is not five years old, but because she's been in the Roth program for well more than five years, it's considered five years old. Mm -hmm. And she's correct. Since she is over 59 and a half, there's no 10% penalty. The woman, folks, has full access to her Roth. It's completely liquid, and she can take out a qualified tax-free withdrawal of all the money. Mm -hmm. Okay, question two. Even though my husband is over 59 and a half, he has not owned his Roth for five years. Can he take the money out penalty-free as well? Or does he need to wait until he has owned the Roth for five years? Here again, it's getting people get confused on this. The husband is over 59 and a half. That ties into the five-year rule on Roth conversions, where you would be hit with a 10% penalty if you removed a Roth conversion within the first five years. This, first of all, doesn't apply because she never said they converted. Sounds to me like he contributed. And he is over 59 and a half, so the 10% early withdrawal penalty goes away. However, the husband's Roth not being five years old would mean if he took growth out of his Roth, he would pay taxes, not a 10% penalty, but taxes on the growth. However, again, he can specify the only money coming out of his Roth is just his contributions. Well, by specify, what you really mean is only take out up to the contribution. You don't. You can't specify Correct. which dollars you're taking out, as you know. Yes. When he files Form 8606, he will be tracking and showing the IRS the only money he took out is his contributions. And so that's because the, the distribution order is specific. The IRS code, uh, contributions come out first, then conversions, then growth. And you can't control that. That's just the way it is. Correct. So he doesn't, Chris is correct, he doesn't tell the custodian 
he will document it on 8606. He just takes out his contributions and tells the IRS, I only took out my contributions. So the wife can take out anything she wants. The husband can only take out contributions. The 10% early withdrawal penalty does not apply to either one of them because they're both over 59 and a half. So far, so good. Next question. Do the rules change if the money my husband takes out is used by our son to help him purchase his first home? No. No. You can use the money to purchase a first home. Although, let me pause there. Now my little... The wheels are turning. The wheels are turning, Chris. I don't... Can it apply to a... Well, he's not a dependent, though. She never said the son is a dependent. Google that real quick. Okay, I don't. But I don't think you're. I don't think there's. You can do that, but I'll double check. I think it has to be for your yeah. first time home purchase, not a dependence. And I doubt the kid is still a dependent. Chris will Google that as I'm chatting about what she's talking about. There is a way to take growth out of your Roth IRA if if you have not had it for five years. To take growth out tax-free if you are using it to buy a first-time home. Yeah. But, but, buying it, but helping your child is, is a gift to the child. The fact that they're using it for their house doesn't get you off the hook. I don't right. see anything that says, or a family member. Okay. I, so it's not going to apply in this case, listener. The first-time home purchase exception is, I believe, for the account owner and their home, not for a beneficiary. And I don't think your son is a dependent. So the mere fact that your husband is going to gift the money to your son and he uses it to buy a home does not preclude him from paying taxes on the growth. But how much growth can there be in a Roth that was opened in 2021? 2022 was a massive down year. 2023 was a good up year, especially if it was funded with contributions of six and a half to seven and a half thousand dollars. I'm not sure. Oh, they're both over fifty nine and a half. So I'm assuming seven and a half thousand dollars. I just I can't see there being much growth in there. If you want to close your Roths and give them to your son, that's your prerogative. And by all means, do it. Don't let the tax tail wag the dog. Okay. fourth question. When and how will we be asked by the IRS from proof of when the first Roth was open? You'll never be asked. I have never seen anyone ever asked to prove when you opened the first Roth. But that's a good question. And maybe someday if you're ever the recipient of one of those deep dive audits where they're going to look at every single thing. And I highly doubt you would be really just having proof from the custodian that you opened the first Roth and and getting that proof. I wouldn't worry about it now. I wouldn't start trying to gather paperwork and save it somewhere unless you happen to have it. But that's what you would do is you would show them during an audit the paperwork. I have never heard of the IRS asking anyone who took money out 
uh, from a Roth and claimed it was a qualified distribution say, hey, uh, we don't believe you. Send us proof. But if they ever did, how are you going to prove it? Copy of a statement or something from the custodian certifying that, yes, you put the money in on such and such a date. And that's all you can show. Um, and honestly, you don't have to go all the way back for 10 years. Just find a statement from that annuity Roth that's more than five years old. Yeah, it's more than five years old. Look, look at this statement dated, you know, 2018. Uh, that's all. The rule is five years. You don't have to say, oh, my God, I opened this in, in, in 1999. What Ross came out in 98, folks. I opened this in 99. I got no proof I opened it in 99. No big deal. Just show them a statement from five years ago. And the custodian can easily give you that. So well, don't open hang on. I'm, I'm at the IRS website, Pub, 5, Pub 590. And this section, and I'm looking more for the Roth application, but a first-time home purchase to avoid the 10% penalty. They define it. It must be used to pay qualified acquisition costs, blah, blah, blah. It must be used to pay qualified acquisition costs for the main home of a first-time home buyer who is any of the following. Yourself, your spouse, you or your spouse's child, you or your spouse's grandchild, you or your spouse's parent or other ancestor. So they could use I it I had no time. idea. Neither did Honestly, I. I thought it had to be extended independent. to those. Yeah. So it's children, grandchildren has nothing to do with dependency. Now, this technically is where they're describing the exceptions to the 10% penalty. But I would guess that their definition of first time home buyer is going to be consistent between this and avoiding the tax on, on the growth, on the, on the growth, growth of a Roth but I will dig a little deeper on that and we can correct that later. So for now, I think our position must change and state that yes, if it's for you, your spouse, your child, grandchild, or, or ancestor, including parents, that would qualify for the exception it qualifies for the exception to the 10% penalty. It should. I agree. If the exception mm -hmm. to the 10% early withdrawal penalty is buying a first time home for, for all those people, I don't see why they would turn around and say, nope, we're still going to tax the growth. Because remember, a qualified withdrawal, folks, to get money out of a Roth tax-free is a two-prong test. First prong, is the Roth five... Well, see, it's still going to come down. The first prong is, is the Roth five years old? Second prong. That's right. It's, I'm still yeah. say, I'm still going to go by my initial. It no, be. it's not going to work. You don't think so because it's a, it's a two prong test for a qualified withdrawal, and and I'm going to have to take this up to the big guy now. We'll answer this next week. Yeah, the two prong test is the Roth five years old. That's prong one. If yes, move on to prong two. Right. Prong two, you are over fifty nine and a half. You are dead which is not a very good one. You are disabled, also not a very good one. Or you're buying a first-time home. He still didn't satisfy prong one. Mm -hmm. That's, that's you my point. You have both prongs on that test. That's true. So, yeah, with that, then maybe it isn't. But I, I learned something new in, the, in that you can avoid the 10% penalty uh, for distributions from a, a traditional um, wouldn't wouldn't matter on a Roth, right? Because if we're talking about 
your contributions, you can take those out at any time. You could help your kid buy a house with your Roth distribution as long as you're just taking out contributions. So there's no question there. The 10% penalty on a traditional IRA distribution, though, I had no idea you could use the $10,000 for uh, to help your child, grandchild, or parent. Yeah, that, I knew on your own. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize you were talking about a traditional mm-hmm. IRA. Yes, on a traditional IRA, I too did not know you could do it to buy a home for a parent or a child. Mm-hmm. But all, also what that is keen on, because those distributions are always taxable, right. they're not even addressing that. They're saying we'll waive the 10%, the 10%. penalty. Yep, true. I don't think that's going to carry over to the Roth yeah. because the Roth has that two-prong test right. and he doesn't satisfy prong one. So I'm sticking yep. to my original, yes. no, you're not going to be able to I do I think it. you're probably right. I think you're probably right on that one. But it'd be interesting to bring it up to the big guy just to make sure we're not missing something. Yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm sticking to my original assessment, but I will ask the Ed Slot group. But I still think he's going to have to pay taxes uh, on them, you know, ten percent penalty because he's over fifty nine and a half. Mm-hmm. But he's going to have to pay taxes on the growth. But again, if 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 there's enough growth in it that your son really needs that growth, it might be worth paying the taxes mm-hmm. on. Yeah. Um, anyways, uh, when and how we ask for proof and how do we prove it? Again, as I, I feel a statement, but I have never ever in twenty four years had anyone ask to prove it. That's a good question. These people get some good questions here. I, I have. No idea. I've never seen them ask, but you just have to prove it's five years old. You don't have to prove you opened it 10 years ago. Okay. And then she says, how will we prove to the IRS that the Roth funds withdrawn were used to fund my son's first time home purchase? Again, I don't think you're going to be able uh, to to take the money out tax-free. I just don't see that happening. So let me again find out from the big guy being Ed Slot. But uh, if you were or if you were in the traditional IRA, as Chris just read, uh, I would assume you would send the money or ask the Roth to send the money directly to the title company so you can see it going directly to the title company and not to the son because that would be a gift to the son. I'm guessing it has to go directly to. It's just like if you want to avoid um, gift tax by paying the educational expenses or the medical expenses of your son, you cannot give the money to your son first and then have your son pay his education or his medical. You have to pay the medical provider or the educational provider directly. I would assume you would have to wire the money directly from the Roth to the title company uh, at closing to prove that it went to fund a first-time home purchase. But I don't think it's going to exempt you from taxation. You didn't solve the two-pronged test to get growth out of a Roth tax-free. You might have solved the second prong, buying the home, which I agree with Chris. I didn't know you could buy the home for a family member. First-time home. But you didn't solve the first prong, which is clear. The Roth must be five years old. Okay, interesting question, I thought. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Oh, goodness, that's it, dude. I'm late already for my... Yeah, you've got to go to your appointment, so I'll have to wrap up. You wrap up, I got to run. Folks, it's been a pleasure. 
Uh, keep the questions coming. Chris will wrap up, and we will see you next week with okay. a brand new show, Sounds good. as Chris have, always says. Have a nice meeting. So, yep. so for the rest of you, thanks again for uh, listening, and thanks again for sending in your questions. If you have a question, uh, please uh, direct it directly to Jim. Uh, Jim at jimhelps.com is the email address, and make sure in the subject line you indicate that it's a question for the podcast. And uh, we had some interesting ones today. That HSA uh, strategy with Social Security was interesting and had a couple of uh, unique learn something new live on the show today about first-time home purchase for your uh, kids, grandkids, uh, and parents and other ancestors. I didn't realize that it expanded to that to avoid that 10% penalty as one of the exceptions uh, on IRAs. That's uh, uh, learn something new every day. Uh, and that's this, that one's going to be it for me. That's going to be the highlight maybe of my week actually. So, uh, yeah, that's the kind of life I lead anyway. Um, keep the questions coming. We'll do our best to answer them and we'll be back with you next week with a brand new show. You have listened to Jim on the radio, read his quotes in the media and enjoyed his banter on iTunes. But even now you may wonder what sets Jim Salmier and associates apart from other financial planning companies. The answer is quite simple. Jim's diverse team of professionals specializes in retirement planning. They form a lifelong relationship with you and measure their success not through product sales, but through the security and prosperity you may achieve in your retirement. Jim's entire team shares his unwavering commitment to placing their clients' best interests first while offering their services at fair prices with full disclosures. The professionals at Jim Saulnier & Associates are available to assist you with your retirement planning needs. Visit jimhelps.com to schedule your complimentary coffee and a second opinion meeting. That's jim, H-E-L-P-S, dot com. Or call 970-530-0556. The Retirement and IRA Show represents the words and views of the show hosts exclusively and should not be construed as investment, legal, or tax advice. All information is believed to be from reliable sources. However, we make no representation as to its completeness or accuracy. All economic and performance information is historical in nature and is not indicative of any future results. Any indices mentioned on the show are unmanaged and cannot be invested indirectly. Diversification and asset allocation strategies do not assure profit or protect against loss. Never make any investment or financial decisions based on information offered on this show without first consulting your financial, legal, or tax advisor. Financial planning services offered through Jim Solnier & Associates, LLC, a registered investment advisor. 